How do some people face incredible tragedies and find within these experiences inspiration to improve the lives of others? Our guest today lost her grandfather, who was the assassinated Prime Minister of the Buganda Kingdom, and her father, who was disappeared by Idi Amin, and yet she went on to become a leading conservationist. Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka is Uganda's first veterinary officer and the founder of Conservation Through Public Health. Interested in animals from a young age, she pursued her studies at the Royal Veterinary College at the University of London before returning to Uganda. In the time since, she's worked tirelessly to preserve the animals of Uganda, being awarded the Whitley Gold Award, the Uthkar Award, and most recently, an appointment to become a United Nations Environment Programme Champion of the Earth. Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, congratulations on the publication on Walking with Gorillas, the Journey of an African Wildlife Vet, which is really eye-opening to hear about your journey, which has faced challenges. You're doing really amazing work, and I believe you're going to share with us a brief passage from it. Just set up for us the passage you're going to share. Okay. I think I'll probably read from the preface. I have always wanted to be around animals, and growing up, I cannot remember a time when there were no pets at home. My elder brother, Apollo Katerega, who was 10 years older than me, also liked animals, especially dogs, and was always bringing stray dogs and cats home. I was the last born of six children. My sister, Veronica Nachibule, who I followed, was five years older than me, so we're just outside each other's age bracket for playing. Thus, the pets at home became my main companions and we developed a strong bond. Along the way, I eventually fulfilled my lifelong dream to not only become a veterinarian, but a wildlife veterinarian. In 1996, I began taking care of the critically endangered mountain gorillas of Uganda. Since then, they've increased in number from 650 to 1,063 individuals in Uganda, Rwanda, and Democratic Republic of Congo. There are no mountain gorillas surviving in zoos outside their range countries. And their only hope is keeping the populations thriving where they're naturally found. The gorillas have shaped my life's calling since I first studied them as a student at the Royal Veterinary College, University of London. I've treated them as the first full-time wildlife veterinarian in Uganda and supported them as founder and chief executive officer of a grassroots NGO and non-profit conservation through public health, more commonly known as CTPH, that promotes biodiversity conservation through not only improving the health of gorillas and other wildlife, but also the health and well-being of the people and livestock with whom they share their fragile habitats. Yes, and that seems to be integral and so important. This is community-based conservation. You're offering alternative livelihoods. It's the health of the mountain gorillas, which you love, but also the humans who live in proximity. And I think you wanted to share with us the first time you encountered gorillas. Yes, I'll share that with you. Finally, the day arrived when I stopped coughing and sneezing and was ready to trek the gorillas. I listened intently to the briefing by the rangers, concentrating on how to behave when with the gorillas. Habituation is a lengthy process to ensure the safety of gorillas and humans. A wild gorilla group is almost impossible to see because when you're within 100 meters of them in a thick, dense forest, they slink back into the bushes. But just because the gorillas are habituated doesn't mean they don't need to be approached with great caution. The ranger William Betunga, who would be taking me and a group of tourists into the forest, emphasized the need to stay still if a gorilla charged. Unnerving but essential advice. He also reminded us never to trap the gorillas when sick, not get closer than five meters. Finally, he stated the importance of digging a hole 
30 centimeters deep if he needed to defecate to protect the gorillas from contact with human fecal matter. We entered the forest home of the Katende Gere group, which had eight gorillas. After walking for an hour, we came across their night nests. Gorillas build a new nest every evening to have a comfortable rest at night. We counted seven nests that were woven with folded twigs and leaves. The ranger explained that only seven gorillas in the group were old enough to build their own nest, ranging from juveniles above four years old to adults. I eagerly measured and scooped the fecal samples in separate plastic containers that I labeled according to the size of the lobe diameter before placing them in a Ziploc bag. I tucked the samples into my backpack where the tourists peppered me with questions. Two hours into the trek, as we ventured deeper into the forest, up a fairly steep slope, the ranger told us that we're getting close. We should get ready to leave our backpacks, which contained food, with the porters, along with our walking sticks. The origin of this rule about the walking sticks is explained in Tor Hansen's book, Impenetrable Forest. While habituating the Katendegaria group, the country director of the Peace Corps volunteers came to Buindi as part of the mock tourism trek to get gorillas used to visits by white people. On one occasion, the silverback gorilla grabbed a stick from one of the visitors and was about to beat him with it, but daring to threaten him in his territory. My heart started beating faster as I knew we were close, and I eagerly gave my walking stick to the porters who had accompanied us. Then I saw him, Kachipira, an adult male silverback, my first encounter with a mountain gorilla. He was on his own that day, which was unusual. He was extremely calm, chewing on a piece of bark. He had a deformity on his hand, earning his name Kachipira, meaning broken hand. I was amazed at how close we were able to get to him. With a distance of five meters between us, Kachipura looked huge and unnervingly accommodating to our presence. I stared into his deep brown eyes. When he glanced back at me, I immediately felt a deep connection to one of our closest cousins with whom we share 98.4% genetic material. The hour went by far too quickly. It's a magical moment, and I wish that all people could have that kind of opportunity, this deep connection and communication. And so over the years, you've been doing this for 30 years? Yeah, right, actually, because I went out there in 1994 as a vet student. Yeah, that's coming to 29 years. Uh, so <laughs> you describe them as majestic. Describe for us a little bit the kinship, the communication that you have observed through your life of service. With the gorillas, I'd say that it's been fascinating studying them from a veterinary perspective, but getting to really learn their behavior. All gorilla groups are headed by an adult male silverback. It's basically a mature male of over 12 years old who started to get silver hairs on his back. So most groups are headed by a silverback. And normally he has several females with babies. But sometimes it's several males in bachelor herds. But there's always a lead silverback. And the silverback determines the timing of activity, when things should be done and the direction of travel. So he's the one who basically decides what everyone does and where they are. And we find that groups that have a silverback with many females and babies are much more stable than one that just has males with very few females. So in fact, the very first group that I saw was a group that had many males and just had one female, which was strange. And that group did not stay together for very long. It eventually disintegrated. But the other group that was habituated for tourism when I first started out, there were only two groups, was a stable group, one silverback with several females and babies. And that group remained for a very long time. In fact, the last member died in 2017. And that group had been going for quite a while, you know, since 24, 25 years. So the mothers are very good mothers. They stay with the babies till they're four years old. And that's the reason why they have an interbirth interval of four and a half years. 
So basically, they stay with the baby until the new one is born. And the one that's four years old can now build his own nest, his or her own nest, which they make before they sleep. And is old enough to look after them, to babysit the younger ones. The older gorilla is old enough to babysit the younger one. And that's a very logical way of birth spacing. Yes. And so you speak about the more resilient of those being when there are a number of females integrated. So we know that females are resilient as you are resilient and, of course, essential for their propagation of the species. To talk a little bit about that resilience and the challenges you and your family faced. I mean, your grandfather was assassinated. Your father disappeared by Idia Amin. And you know, just tell us a little bit about that, because to make your way to be Uganda's first wildlife veterinarian was a challenge just to make sure you didn't fall prey to what had happened to different family members, right? Yes, I have faced very many challenges in my life. And I'd say the very first big challenge that happened in my family, of course, was before I was born, when my grandfather having been the prime minister of Buganda Kingdom, which is the central kingdom where Uganda gets its name. He was assassinated because he encouraged people to sell their land to create the first university in East Africa, University of East Africa. And unfortunately, he was killed when he was going to church. He was shot down immediately and died on the spot. But what happened though is, although he was killed, whatever he was trying to create, which was really going to help the country and the other neighboring countries of Kenya and Tanzania, happened because he was killed a day after he had signed the agreement. So that went ahead. The University of East Africa was built and now it's called Makere University in Uganda. And so my mom, of course, lost her dad when she was still very young, a teenager, and that was very difficult on them. Then she always had this legacy to continue to develop the country. So did her siblings. And then my mom met my dad and my dad also was very passionate about developing the country. So my dad was in the very first government after independence in the 1960s, when Uganda gained independence in 1962. And shortly after that, he was appointed as a cabinet minister in 1964. And he led several goodwill missions to several countries, including China and Japan and Yugoslavia, countries like that in Eastern Europe, but also USSR, the former Russia. And later on, he also got a position still as a cabinet minister of works and communications. And he was able to continue to develop the country. And what I really love about that is I love a picture when he was sitting in a tractor building the Kampala Kabale Road, which I use often to get to the gorillas. They said he was a hands-on minister. He liked to be there with everyone, you know, like doing things. He wasn't just sitting on the desk. But sadly, I never got to experience any of that because when I was two years old, he was killed by Idi Amin because he was a prominent minister in the previous government under President Obote. So when Amin took over, he targeted people who were prominent. And my dad was one of the first prominent people who disappeared from home. He was abducted from home and we never saw him again. And I was two years old, so I was too young to remember him. But I grew up knowing that my dad had done great things for the country. And I felt like I wanted to continue his legacy. When I developed a passion for animals and for wildlife, I felt that I could bring Uganda back to its former glory and go towards having a prosperous Uganda. And in that way, I would be continuing my dad's legacy. And so... Because my passion was animals, having grown up with many pets at home. And later on, I got into wildlife and I started a wildlife club. I was shocked when I went into the national park and saw how, how few animals there were in Queen Elizabeth National Park, which is one of the first national parks. And I felt like I wanted to do something about it. And by becoming a vet who also works with wildlife, I could hope to bring Uganda back to its former glory. 
as a way to also continue my father's legacy. Yes. And so it's having all of this, your father's legacy, also your grandfather's legacy of having given his life to, in order to bring education to more people. Then you went abroad. You were educated in three countries abroad, notably in the UK. And tell us about this journey towards finally coming back home and establishing yourself. Really the first woman, not easy when there's no one else. You, you made your own job. Yes, I got an opportunity to study in the UK. There's a time when Uganda got quite dangerous and, and my mum felt, why didn't I go and study in the UK? So I actually first went in high school to a school called Dola Academy, which was already attended by other family friends, the Mulwanas and then the Kalemas. My sister went there before and my cousin, Hansa Wambuzi, and then our Bamunos also joined us. So over time, there were four Ugandan families that went to Dola Academy. But what was so important for me to go to Dola Academy is I saw how much people loved animals and how veterinary medicine was really revered. If you're a vet, you're considered a very important person in British society. Unlike Uganda, where if you're a medical doctor, yes, but a vet doctor, not really. So I think all of that kind of shaped and made me more determined to want to become a vet. And I focused my studies on veterinary medicine in the UK. I went to the Royal Vet College, University of London. That's where I did my vet school. And in the vet college, I was allowed to work with animals of my choice. So I came back and I worked first with captive chimpanzees in, in Tebezu, and they were victims of the bushmeat trade. They were basically orphans. Their mothers had been eaten and they were too small to eat across in DRC. So they sold the babies and there were quite a lot of them in the zoo. They were being looked after by the Jane Goodall Institute. So I got to understand more about primates, how intelligent they are, how much they miss their mothers and how the bushmeat trade can be really devastating for species and the animals themselves, the anim for animal welfare. Then two years later, I got to study wild chimpanzees in Butongo Forest, which was really amazing. It was my first time to study animals in the wild under Professor Vernon Reynolds. I went to the Budongo Forest Project and that was great for me. I was studying parasites in the fecal samples of the chimps and I got to understand potential disease issues about primates. And then finally, two years later, I got to study the mountain gorillas, which I had heard about when I revived the wildlife clubs at my high school because somebody came and told us when I was volunteering at the office that we have mountain gorillas. And when I said I wanted to see them, he said, they're not habituated. Later, when they became habituated, I finally got to study the mountain gorillas. And when I went there, it was a totally life-changing experience for me. Because when I saw that there were just only about 300 mountain gorillas left in Bwindi National Park, and only half of the total mountain gorilla population, which was only at around 600. And I saw how they were threatened by a lot of human population growth. It, you, it was a really hard age when you get to Bwindi. Suddenly there are people, then suddenly there's a forest. There's no buffer zone. And so you could see the gorillas were, there was a lot of human-wildlife interaction, a lot of pressure on the forest habitat of the gorillas. But at the same time, we could easily make them sick. When I arrived in the forest and I got sick, I couldn't visit the gorillas for a whole week. And I felt so upset. I was like, oh no, I may, I may never get to see them after wanting to have studied them for all these years. But Fortunately, luckily, I got better. I stopped coughing and sneezing. And then I finally had a chance to see them. And when I got to see them and I saw how closely connected we are, I could see how it's so easy for us to make them sick. And I felt, why don't I become a full-time wildlife vet? Because up to that point, I thought, I want to be a vet who also works with wildlife, making sure the gorillas are you know, getting diseases from tourists, they're safe, and also bringing the other wildlife back through translocations, moving animals. And yeah, so... 
I got back to Eurovet College, completely changed and inspired. And uh, I'd actually spent so much time writing my report. I didn't really study that much for my final exams. And, but I did manage to write a letter to the executive director of the National Parks. And I said to him, this is what a vet does in conservation, a wildlife vet can do. And I listed the things that wildlife vets do. And I said, I want to be your first vet. And this was snail mail because there was no email at the time. And a few weeks later, I was pleasantly shocked to get a letter from him saying, come back. He said, your job is waiting for you. We look forward to see you after you finish your studies. I was like, wow, he's convinced by what I wrote. Because what I did is I attached a copy of my report and I told him, this is what a vet does in wildlife. You need to have a, a wildlife fit, and I want to be your first wildlife fit in, in Uganda. I was amazed. He just said that they were thinking of hiring a vet because they were concerned that tourists could make gorillas sick with a fatal flu like COVID-19, and they did need a vet. And so when he just said, your job is waiting for you, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. So, so yeah, eventually after I finished vet school, I had to do some resets in between because I didn't study hard enough. So when everybody else was studying for their final exams, I was just dreaming about going back to Uganda and working with wildlife. And also I did not study as hard as I should have. And I had to do research over the summer. I did graduate with most of my friends. I only graduated with three other people. But immediately after that, in the following year, in December, I returned home. And in January, I started as Uganda's first wildlife vet, which is a very exciting first job. <laughs> oh, I loved hearing about that and reading about it in your book. We can't have, wait for the opportunities to come for us. Uh, yes. We have to tell people what we want and that passion that gets communicated. And then doors will open, but we have to knock on them. We have to seek out those opportunities. And we should say you focus, of course, on the majestic mountain gorilla, but it's also taken in wildlife conservation from elephants to giraffes. Some of these projects like transporting these animals, it's not an easy process. Just tell us a little bit about some of this work. Yes. Actually, as soon as I was hired as the first vet in the Uganda National Parks, which eventually became the Uganda Wildlife Authority, the director was like, well, we have a vet. It seemed like only him and I understood what a vet should be doing. Everybody else was looking at me like, okay, what's she doing here? In fact, when we had a book launch for the book in Uganda, the person who introduced me, the head director of Nature Uganda, the executive director said, I probably don't remember, but he first saw me in the National Parks. And he asked the rangers, who's she? And they said, she's a vet working in the national parks. They're like, what's a vet doing with wildlife? Vets only treat animals which are domestic. He asked the rangers and the rangers were like, yeah, she's here. She's been hired. He had been working in conservation for a few years before me. So yes, I was a strange person. So I did spend a lot of time explaining what a vet does and what a vet could do in wildlife. But Dr. Droma did call me quite early on in my appointment, like a couple of months later, and said to me, there's some elephants that are raiding people's crops. And now that you're hired, we have a vet. Instead of killing them, which is what you'd normally do in the end, let's move them. And I was like, move them. Okay. I was used to treating cats and dogs, horses and cows. I, but I didn't want to tell him that I don't know how to move an elephant. So I said, let's see what we can do. Because it's like the biggest of the biggest animals that you basically work with among the very biggest. But he did Kenya Life Service. I had gone there for some training earlier. And I did hear that they were moving elephants. So I said to him, actually, let me go to Kenya and learn how to move elephants. And he said, okay, he approved everything. And I went over to Kenya and they were moving elephants from Mwea Reserve that had too many to Sabo National Park that is really big and had enough space for them. And so I participated in that translocation. Good enough, the head bed, Dr. Richard Cook threw me in the deep end immediately. I had to deal with an elephant on my own. 
and just almost got up in front of everyone because we were more worried about them dying than them waking up. But she had been down for a while, the matriarch, and so she almost got up. And I had to quickly scramble in the box and find the drills to bring her back down because it had been really terrible if she had walked away in front of everyone. After all the trouble of getting them involved, starting them from a helicopter, and then the ground vehicles come and follow them. And when they are darted, and as they fall, you make sure that they're not lying on their chest because they squash their lungs. And then when they're lying on their side, then they left a vet for every elephant to monitor them. So the first elephant, they left me to monitor it as he took the other vets to other elephants. And so that was really good experience for me because I had to handle all of that by myself, including the crowds of people who were standing around us, which also included the media, who were ready to report anything. That's strange. So luckily the elephant didn't get up and then were able to load them onto the trucks after reversing them when they were in the trucks. And the elephants were safely taken to Sabo. We drove overnight. So then when we came to do it in Uganda, the difference was in Kenya, there was a big capture team. There were a number of vets, at least four or five of us. There was also all these researchers, elephant experts. It was a huge team of experts. Uganda, no capture team. I was the only vet. There was a helicopter pilot, the same person who helped them move elephants from Zimbabwe. I convinced him to come to Uganda. We had Peter Muller, who's very good at managing trucks and things. He's a warden engineer. And so basically, only Clem and I had the experience from Kenya. We brought it to the Uganda team. Three rangers joined us. And although one of them was an expert in studying the behavior of elephants, it was a completely new experience for him. And then we ended up, because we didn't have money to hire a capture team, the local communities volunteered to push the elephant. So that was the situation. It was crazy, but very interesting and very important. And luckily, we were able to get those two elephants darted one at a time and put into the truck. The second one took a while to wake up, which was a hairy moment. But finally, she woke up and we found out that they were both females because elephants tend to be headed by a matriarch. And that's why they were not having babies anymore, because a farmer wondered, why aren't they having babies? And so we drove again 15 hours to Queen Elizabeth National Park from Mubende. It doesn't normally take that long, but we couldn't use the shorter route because the road was very bad. And then the longer route, we kept having punctures the whole way. So we finally got there 15 hours later and released the elephants into their new home. And actually, these elephants used to move from Queen Elizabeth to Murchison Falls National Park. And they were stuck in a forest because of human habitation, roads and buildings and everything. And so they were stuck in a forest pocket. And I think the other members of the family had been killed by the local community. And there are just two females remaining. So we took them to the Queen Elizabeth part of their migration route, which was really exciting. And then the next thing we, that was always on the table was to move giraffes because Kidepo Valley National Park only had one female giraffe and five males. And if anything happened to her, there would be no, no more giraffes in Kidepo. So there was always the plan of bringing giraffes from Kenya to Uganda. And Lake Nakuru was selected because they had too many giraffes and they wanted to get rid of some. They were debarking the trees. And actually being a wildlife vet in Uganda at that time meant not only moving the giraffes, but doing all the paperwork leading up to it, including taking letters from the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Uganda to the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Kenya. I had to do paperwork as well. I think it was a very good experience for me, though. I realized that when you're a wildlife vet, you don't just deal with handling the animals. There's so many other issues, the bureaucracies of carrying letters across and everything. So finally, we got permission. Peter Muller managed to raise more money for that as well, like he did for the elephants, from Save the Elephants of Africa. This time around it was from Frankfurt Zoological Society. And we raised some money and now we're ready to move the giraffes 
So we go over to Kenya and I took two rangers with me from Kitepo because we needed them to look after the giraffes after they settled in. And when we get there, the Kenya team helped us a lot. The giraffes were darted by vehicle. They were put into a boma for three weeks. Then we came to collect them. But we couldn't, because the road between Nakuru and Kidepo was quite a long drive. And there were people fighting, like warriors along the way that could shoot at us. So we decided to fly them. So Peter was able to get a military Hercules that normally carries cargo and stuff for the UN. So he got this Hercules and we flew them from Eldoret. We drove them from Nakuru to Eldoret Airport. And then we put them in the Hercules. And the pilot said to me, what if the giraffes start eating the wires of the plane? Do you have a drug to make them sleep? And I said, yeah. Because I said, I'm more worried about them collapsing. He's like, well, I'm worried about the plane going down. So I said, okay, I have the drug to make them sleep. So we get onto that flight. And then the Kenya Life Service head vet, John Wambua, says to me, I forgot my passport. I'm like, you forgot your passport? He said, I can't come with you to Uganda. He just told me this at the last moment. Could you believe it? And I'm like... How am I going to manage to carry these giraffes to Uganda? It's just me, Peter Muller, and two rangers. He's like, you'll be fine. I'm like, what? So it was a really nerve-wracking journey. You know, one and a half hours sitting in the plane, flying the giraffes to Uganda, three of them. When we get to Uganda, we found people waiting for us, a huge welcome. Actually, all of this was filmed on BBC One. <laughs> it was quite good to go. Actually, when I was writing this chapter, I had to watch the film again just to bring me back into how it was at the time. And so then we, we landed in Kidepo, but unfortunately, one of the females collapsed when we transported them from the airstrip to the boma that Peter had built with the rangers. It was a much bigger boma for them to stay for six weeks. And I was thinking, oh my God. So I had to just rush, hold her head up. Luckily, she got up and she stood and she was fine. She started nuzzling the other giraffes and everything was fine. And it was such a relief for everyone. And eventually, after six weeks, the other giraffes were driven to the boma and we opened the gates of the boma and we thought that they would automatically join them, but they didn't. And so then we had to push the other nine giraffes towards them because they just went by and they were not really ready to join them. So we pushed them and then suddenly they all followed. The big female who had collapsed is the one who took the lead and the young female and young male followed. So that was really, really, really fascinating. And I'm pleased to say that when I went back 15 years later, when I was now serving on the board of Uganda Wildlife Authority, I got there 15 years later to approve the general management plan. I did say to them that if I don't see the giraffes, I'm not approving the plan. So like, I have to see these giraffes. How are they doing? And we saw them. And what I was so excited about is the numbers had gone to 35. So just from those three we brought from Kenya, we increased the numbers from six to 35. And I was very, very excited about that because at the time there was always a big debate. Is it worth translocating animals? Is it putting them under too much stress? Is it actually going to help populations to grow? Is it going to boost them? And so that kind of showed that when you move giraffes and the conditions are right, you can restore the population. So now Kidepo has a strong, stable population. A few years later, more giraffes were moved from another national park to Kidepo within Uganda, Murchison. And so the numbers are now over 50 and the numbers keep growing and I'm excited about that. So yeah, I got to do a lot of interesting things as Uganda's first wildlife vet. And I'm glad that they're continuing. More giraffes have been translocated and other species have been translocated, which is wonderful. The vet unit continued beyond me and that's what I really wanted. Dr. Kalema's discussion and meditation on impact and legacy has been nothing short of awe-inspiring. As a student from Uganda, currently studying abroad as well, seeing how she took that opportunity and converted it back into helping her homeland, I can't help but be motivated to continue to do the same. 
Educational expats from the global south are by no means a new phenomenon, but in the midst of an ever-increasing rate of brain drain in the pursuit of personal success, the necessity to have people stay back home in order to assist in developing the country is paramount. Her story is exemplary and shows that it's possible to indeed have the best of both worlds as long as your intentions remain in the right place and your actions bear results. I have a few family members who also work in the public health sector. And in fact, our ancestral home directly borders Bundi impenetrable rainforest. Seeing other people doing similar work, more closely related to their own unique fields of expertise, so close to somewhere so familiar to me, reinforces the idea that development and sustainability cut across different disciplines and industries and are truly a community effort. As I continue my studies, I hope to continue building my own community and ability to create the change I want to see back home. Now back to the interview. You spoke a little while back there, and I can imagine that you do encounter certain, you have to somehow evolve the culture, the traditions of like it was always been done and offering alternative livelihoods, I know, as part of your projects, whether it's, tell us a little bit about whether it's the guerrilla coffee scheme or the other ways that you offer alternatives so that you're partners in conservation. Yes, I actually did. Actually, with the, when we started the nonprofit Conservation Through Public Health, the NGO, our charity, I realized that although the main reason we started it was to prevent disease between people and wildlife, especially closely related great apes like the gorillas and the chimpanzees, we wanted, of course, disease to not go in both directions. So people not eating bushmeat that can make them sick or people making gorillas and chimpanzees sick. We wanted to avoid disease transmission in both directions. We had had people eating hippos that died of anthrax and people died of anthrax. And there's also Ebola in other countries. People had eaten gorillas that died of Ebola. So the gorillas live in a habitat. And if the habitat is not secure, the species won't be secure. And so even the other animals that the gorillas live with in the habitat that people like to eat. Like in Uganda, people don't eat primates. At least they don't eat great apes, like gorillas, in the area where the gorillas are found. But if they cross to Congo, they could get eaten because of the different cultural beliefs about eating great apes and what they mean to people. In Uganda, it was a taboo, bad luck to look in the eyes of a gorilla, the hunter-gatherers who lived in the park, the Batwa. Whereas in Congo, you eat a gorilla, you can become as strong as a gorilla. So it's different cultural beliefs can determine the fate of the animals. But people like to eat daika, bush pig, and gorillas would get caught in snares and get speared. So that was a major worry for us. And I realized that, yes, we're preventing disease transmission to the mountain gorillas and other wildlife, but they live in a habitat. And as long as people are coming in, they're cutting firewood, they're killing other species, the gorillas are going to get affected. And also at the same time, people have large families. The family planning program, part of the reason we began it was because we felt people should have a manageable family size so they don't have to enter the forest to poach and collect firewood. And also it improves maternal health and child health. And there's a reduction in diseases and potential zoonotic disease transmission to gorillas. But also it helps to break the poverty cycle. So all the children go to school, they get good jobs and they don't have to enter the forest to survive. And so it shaped all our programs to do with why we started community-based family planning, providing access to contraceptives, and then also later on adding gorilla conservation coffee, finding out that many people are unhealthy because they're poor. And that's when we started gorilla conservation coffee. Often when you're visiting the gorillas, you cross coffee farms. And sometimes they'll tell tourists, this is an Arabica tree. 
or a robusta tree. But a lot of these tourists have never seen a coffee tree in their life. They've only drunk coffee in a cafe, supermarket, but they've never seen a coffee tree. And they're fascinated. They're interested. I didn't realize that these farmers were not getting a fair market a steady market or a fair price for their coffee. Because of that, they were still entering the forest to poach and collect firewood. So we started to support these farmers living around the park. My husband actually suggested that why don't we start a global coffee brand to save gorillas once you put a time. And so over time, we've developed Gorilla Conservation Coffee and we give the farmers an above market price for good coffee. It has to be good because we have to be able to sell it at a premium specialty price. And also we tell them that if they have good coffee, they're more likely to be better farmers and earn more. And everybody's better off. Thankfully, we have very good coffee there because it's a high altitude anyway. And so this coffee, then we sell it to, once we've processed it in Kampala, we sell it to the lodges, but we also sell it to distributors outside Uganda. We sell it at the airport when people are leaving in Tebe Duty Free, but also we sell the coffee to a coffee roaster in the UK, Vicky from Manuro Beans, and she buys the coffee and is able to distribute it in the UK. We also had a roaster in US, roasters we worked with in US and New Zealand and South Africa at one point. So we're basically trying to get it outside Uganda. And during the COVID pandemic, we realized that we really needed to strengthen the market outside Uganda because the country was in total lockdown and we had no money to buy coffee from farmers. And that's when the UK distributor came on board and she's ordered over 15 times since the pandemic began, which is amazing. It's wonderful. That's really interesting about the coffee and how they actually called through during COVID to keep supporting the business. Were there any other significant ways that the pandemic and the lockdown impacted your work? And are you worried about any other diseases that might be transferred from human beings to animals and vice versa? Yes, the pandemic did affect our work. One of the biggest ways the pandemic affected our work was on top of the coffee, people not being able to provide a livelihood for the communities that had really grown to have an over-dependence on tourism, we found out. Because once there were no tourists coming, poaching suddenly increased. And because people were used to, that abandoned their normal ways of surviving, like planting food in their garden and planting crops in their garden, because it was much easier to carry someone's luggage to the gorillas and earn a lot of money as a tourist, which was a lot easier as a porter than to dig in the garden all day long. And so a lot of people had abandoned what they used to do to survive because of the tourism industry. And so one of the things that we did in the pandemic was to make sure that we reduced the number of hungry people around the park, especially when a gorilla was speared. The poaching went up to the extent that a well-known gorilla was speared by a hungry Bushmeat poacher, the lead superback of the Nkuringo gorilla group Rafiki. So when he was killed, we realized that the Bushmeat poacher was hungry. He was given 11 years in jail, which was a victory for conservation in a way, because no one had ever got such a long sentence for killing wildlife in the country. But his wife was very poor. She was among the poorest of the poor, with three children under the age of three, and she's only 22 years old. And there were many other people like him in his community who were struggling. And we knew that there are other hungry bushmeat poachers who might still want to take a risk if we don't do something about this. So we started to provide them with fast-growing seedlings that grow within one to four months. We call it ready to grow. So once they're able to plant these seedlings, the food, the crops are able to grow and they can have food. And when we distributed to the first 1,000 households, the majority of them said they're poaching because they're hungry. So we continue doing this and continue to distribute to more and we still have more to go. So now it's become part of our One Health program. But one other part that we really had to stress was the One Health implications of the pandemic. Just as gorillas can easily pick up flu, and scabies and other diseases. And when they picked up scabies from the local community, that's why we started conservation through public health. We were concerned they'd pick up COVID. So we advocated to the government for everyone to wear masks. And the government was 
very willing to do this because they were seeing people all over the world putting on masks and they were concerned about COVID between people, but also going to the gorillas and the chimpanzees. So we advocated for that. And now by the time COVID reached Uganda, we had trained the rangers about putting on a mask and the importance of making sure everyone who comes within 10 meters of a gorilla is wearing a mask. And so that happened. And the government actually increased the distance from seven to 10 meters because they're concerned about COVID. And uh, we also trained the gorilla guardians who had gorillas back when they come out, put on masks when they're herding them. And then our village health and conservation teams who are actually community health workers who are trained to do conservation work. We trained, we got masks for all of them, but we trained them to get people in the community to be conscious of all of this and really accelerated the adoption of hand washing stations. And uh, yes, we did a whole lot of things, including when where Freaky was killed, we decided to engage the reform poachers again and make, try to get them livelihoods with funding from the British High Commission and very many donors, Task Trust and Arcas Foundation, IUCN. They all came on board to help at this very critical time. Whitley Fund for Nature and Wildlife Conservation Network, they all came to help during the pandemic. And also individual donors, because our NGO was now serving on the Ministry of Health COVID-19 Task Force. We had served on the task force when it was anthrax, outbreak, Ebola, Marburg, and others. So when COVID came, we were on the task force again, and we were the only conservation NGO on the task force. So whenever we'd have virtual meetings, they would always ask, how are the gorillas doing? And we would give them updates, and they tried to make sure that the rangers were first to get tested. We advocated for the rangers also to be the first to be vaccinated together with teachers and health workers so that they could be protected and it's less risk to the gorillas, the rangers and the conservation personnel. And But now the biggest problem we have is some tourists are saying, and people are saying, but COVID is over or it's almost over. Why do we have to wear masks? Actually, we still need to wear masks because it keeps coming back. But also the gorillas are exposed to other respiratory diseases. So it was actually found that in Rwanda, where they have a higher prevalence of respiratory disease, a higher rate because it's colder and it's a higher altitude, respiratory disease in the gorillas, it actually really went down during the pandemic because everybody was wearing masks. So they were being protected not only from COVID, but other respiratory diseases. And so we're really insisting that way beyond the pandemic, everyone has to wear masks. And so we got together with, with we developed a policy brief for all the countries in Africa that have great apes and 13 of them have great ape tourism, so that everybody should adopt the measures. It's about COVID-19 and great apes. Everyone should adopt the measures of, you know, wearing masks, maintaining a respectable distance, and also giving back to the community. Because once you buy a craft from a local community member, or you buy their food or stay in their accommodation, you're reducing their need to enter the forest to poach, or even buying coffee from them. It's really helping. And community tour guide, tour operators, because the policy brief was geared towards the government, the donors, and the tour operators, because they're the ones who describe the experience to tourists before they come. They're the ones who can tell a tourist, look, you have to wear a mask, not only Uganda, Rwanda, but also all the other countries that have great apes. Uganda, Rwanda, and DRC had started doing mask wearing. Tanzania had also started doing it, but telling them that everyone should wear masks, maintain a respectable distance, and support communities. So it's not enough to just say, I've seen a gorilla, I'm going home. You should make sure that also the two operators fix another day for people to also visit the local communities because that really helps to conserve the gorillas and other wildlife. 
because they're much less likely to poach when they've met a tourist. That's a really robust sort of network of things that you had going on to support the community and then also continue the conservation work in spite of the pandemic. I was wondering if, because you mentioned a lot of international donors and NGOs that were helping you, but I was wondering the extent to which the government has been conducive to all your efforts going on and specifically Museveni's NRM government and how your relationship with that has been as you pursue your work. I would say that the government has been supportive because they really see the gorillas as contributing significantly to the economic development of the country. At the beginning, it wasn't the case, I would say. When I say it wasn't the case, when guerrilla tourism began, there were just two guerrilla groups. So everyone thought the main parks that bring money as much as falls, Queen Elizabeth National Park. But now there's now over 22 habituated guerrilla groups. And so the Bini Fendribo National Park is generating most of the revenue for tourism from wildlife for the country, wildlife tourism revenue, 60%. And so all eyes are on Brindy because of the gorillas. Tourists pay $700 to spend an hour with the gorillas. And it's eight tourists per gorilla group per day. So you can have as many as 160 tourists, so even 176, each paying 700. And that's a significant amount of money. I mean, during the pandemic, $2 million being lost every month with no tourists when there was lockdowns. And so the government really sees the gorillas as very important, gorilla conservation. Wildlife conservation is really becoming, in fact, they're trying to push domestic tourism quite a bit. But most Ugandans, when they have money, they want to go to London, Dubai. But during the pandemic, no one could go anywhere. So domestic tourism went up, which was really good. People began to discover the treasures in their country, and many of them thought they need to keep doing this, which was great. But then also one thing that I was really impressed about was the time when we were very adamant about people not visiting gorillas and chimpanzees when they're not wearing masks. So we teamed up with other scientists, other vets and researchers who do work in Africa. We wrote a paper to Nature. It was a very brief two paragraphs saying, COVID has come, parks may have to be closed to great apes because of this big threat. And this was before it had really become a big threat, before it had even reached Germany. And then it came and sure enough, lockdowns happened. And so the government realized that they had to make sure the gorillas and the chimps wouldn't get sick before people would even agree to come back to Uganda. The tourists themselves were sensitized about it. They were concerned because in their own countries, people were dying in a very big way. And so all these measures had to be put in place. The government made sure that when you visit these animals, you have to put on a mask, you have to maintain a distance. They put up standard operating procedures on their websites and I was just so happy that they realized the value of the gorillas and the chimpanzees and how the threats they faced. There were health stakeholders, but there were also people like Kampala City Council Authority, development planners. Everybody was concerned that we shouldn't make the gorillas and chimpanzees sick. So that I was glad that those advocacy efforts are really paying off nationally as well as regionally. And with all the work that you've been doing and with all the different stakeholders that you've interacted with, both locally and on an international level, and the recognition that you've received, how does it all feel to be such a prominent pioneer in your field? And is there any sort of pressure that you feel even as you continue to do your life's work? Well, well, I am very honored and humbled to receive several awards for our work and recognition and a lot of media attention. And I think a lot of it is because we're doing things which are different, but they were making a difference. Like starting to bring about animal welfare and wildlife conservation was a new thing. And then bringing in public health in conservation was also a new thing, which the media got very interested in. And also like championing a new way of conservation, because when you improve people's health, not only do you reduce the threat of disease transmission between people and wildlife, but you also make them feel that you care about them 
because healthcare is a basic human right. So it's been like a journey and we've been advocating for it, championing it. And yeah, I am humbled and honored about being able to walk this journey. I would say maybe there is pressure because people are always watching to see what are you going to do next? What's your next innovation? How are you handling all these things? But in a way, I like that pressure because it makes us work hard and it makes us continue to move forward with our plans because it's very easy to give up. There's so many challenges around us, so many things that can make you frustrated. But when you know that, you know, people are expecting something from you and they're looking up to you to see what you're going to do next and how you're going to resolve a particular issue and how you're going to address something, it makes you more determined. Like when the pandemic came along, a lot of people contacted me and said, now we understand what you've been trying to do all along. Like why you're disease is important in conservation and why you're combining human health and animal health. People who had thought it wasn't an important issue go back to me and said, now we understand what you're doing. And so during the pandemic, actually, we've never been busier. We were so busy because we knew that we had an approach that could prevent zoonotic disease and we had to do something. When being worried, sitting at home, thinking, what are we going to do? Like a lot of people had to do. We were in a position to actually make a difference and we really were so busy. All of us were so busy during the pandemic. And I kept thinking, once the pandemic is over, we're all going to have a holiday, but it hasn't really happened yet. So yeah, they, there is pressure to keep having to talk about these issues, advocate for them so that we keep moving to the next level. And we started developing guerrilla tourism in Uganda in the early 90s, but also it was under the umbrella of the Africa CSO Biodiversity Alliance, which was created during the pandemic. And I thought this is really important because all the countries in Africa agree that this is how we should carry out great ape tourism. It's easier for the individual countries to carry it out, knowing that they're part of a bigger umbrella of countries that are all doing this. And they're not just on their own trying to enforce these regulations and, and best practice guidelines of IUCN. And so, yeah, it's really made me feel that we need to expand what we're doing. We can't just keep it to Uganda, but we should try and expand it to other countries, working with local stakeholders, whether it's advocating to governments or actually carrying out projects. We have a couple of projects in DRC, small projects. But yeah, we, this is like, we're looking into doing things like that. And actually, part of the reason of writing the book, which I've always wanted to do, but I felt that it's a very good way to advocate for the things that we're trying to promote. Because once people read the book, and not only people in my field, but people even beyond my field, it was written for the general audience. It wasn't written for an academic audience, but we wanted everybody to learn what some of the lessons I've learned along the way and adopt them or try and support them so that there's much more support for conservation in Africa. I think there definitely is. I mean, you're an inspiring figure. And in going to some of those accolades or international admirers, they include Jane Goodall, who wrote the introduction for your book, Walking with Gorillas, and of course, won the United Nations the highest environmental honor in 2021. So as you look back on this 30-year commitment of yours to conservation, and you think about the future and the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember about the natural world and about our cousins, the gorillas? Yes, I was really excited to win the UNEP Champion of the Earth Award for our One Health Approach to Conservation. I'm glad that the year before me, another One Health Advocate won it, a vet, Dr. Fabian Yanditz, who also deals with chimpanzees in Ivory Coast and zoonotic disease. I was so excited when Dr. Jane Goodall wrote the foreword. And she really has a big focus now on the younger generation through Roots and Shoots. 
And being that I developed my career by setting up a wildlife club at high school, that from a young age, teenagers should know that they can make a difference. They don't have to be much older to make a difference. Even as a teenager, you can make a huge difference. I'm excited. My son wrote a book, Zookeeper for a Week, which he wrote during the pandemic because he had spent a week at the zoo when he was 13. And when he was 16, he was able to write this book. So you're never too young to make a difference. And I think what I would like to tell many young people is follow your dreams and the rest will follow. Even if what you're trying to do is something that no one has ever done before. Let's say women are not considered it's a male-dominated profession. The wildlife conservation, wildlife veterinary medicine in Uganda is still very male-dominated. And you shouldn't really worry what people think about you, what culture society expects you to be doing. If you feel that it's an important thing to do, you should go ahead and do it. And it's so important to protect the natural world, to protect the nature and the wildlife, because when we protect the nature, when we protect nature, we're ultimately protecting ourselves. Gorillas are so few in numbers still. I mean, we're happy that the numbers are growing because of so many successful conservation efforts. The government, the NGOs, the tour operators, the numbers of mountain gorillas are going up. But there's only just over 1,000 left in the whole world. So that's still very few. And they still need a lot of care and protection. We need to expand their habitat. There's so much we need to do with the gorillas. But I'm actually on the... I'm a vice president of the African Primate Society, which is building African leadership in primate research and conservation, because we need more African leaders, African leadership, in order to protect all the primates in Africa. The gorillas is a success story, the mountain gorillas only, actually. The other gorilla subspecies aren't. The numbers are going down. The chimpanzee numbers are going down. All the other primate numbers are going down, most of the other primates. But if you have enough African leadership, you can turn it around. So I do tell a lot of young people that, you know, it's important to protect your wildlife because the future of the wildlife depends on you and your future depends on the wildlife. And so we all need to, we're not too young to make a difference. We've actually started engaging youth more and we've recently got funding from National Geographic to support 10 to 24 year old children, both youth and school groups. And it's a STEM project, STEM with arts. And they are coming up with their own projects for recycling, removing rubbish, all kinds of things, reducing firewood use in the forest. And all of that is helping. And from a young age, these students hopefully will end up becoming conservationists in the long term. So even if they're in parliament, they're the kind of people, if someone says, let's cut down trees to plant sugarcane, they will be the first to say, no, this won't happen. And if you have a critical mass of people who can stop such decisions being made, then the wildlife has a very secure future. And so do the people who are living in the countries where the wildlife is found. Yeah, well, it's amazing what you're doing. And it's so inspiring to listen to you. So thank you, Dr. Gladys Kalema Zixoka, for your perseverance and courage and sharing your passion for conservation and mountain gorillas. And the other, other work you do promoting community health and communicating the importance of wildlife preservation and how it's important to the general public. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. And thank you so much for inviting me, Mia and Ethan. And it's so great that Ethan's from Uganda. And I hope you all get to visit the gorillas. But definitely would love to host you, Mia. Have you visited the gorillas, Ethan? I haven't visited them yet, but I do want to visit them with my family once I finish university here. That would be great. Come and stay at our gorilla conservation camp, Windy, and see our work as well. It would be my yeah. pleasure as well. And in the meantime, anyone who's curious and they don't have that opportunity to travel can get a full breadth of your life's journey and work through walking with gorillas. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Ethan Intrakira with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Ethan Intrakira, digital media coordinator with Sam Myers. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.